Hello, and welcome to Episode 7 of the AESA Graduate Student Coalition Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Morial, a PhD candidate in Social Foundations of Education at the University of South Carolina. In this episode, I talked to Dr. John Hale about his 2018 AESA Critics' Choice Award-winning book, The Freedom Schools, Student Activists in the Mississippi Civil Rights Movement. Created in 1964 as part of the Mississippi Freedom Summer, the Mississippi Freedom Schools were launched by educators and activists to provide an alternative education for African-American students that would facilitate student activism and participatory democracy. The schools, as Dr. Hale demonstrates, had a crucial role in the civil rights movement and a major impact on the development of progressive education throughout the nation. This book is based on dozens of first-time interviews with former Freedom School students and teachers, in addition to rich archival materials. This remarkable social history of the Mississippi Freedom Schools is told from the perspective of those frequently left out of civil rights narratives that focus almost exclusively on national leadership or college-age protesters. In tracing the story of Freedom Schools students into adulthood, this book reveals the ways in which these individuals turned their training into decades of activism. They also offer key strategies for further integrating the American school system and politically engaging today's youth. Dr. John Hale is an associate professor in the Department of Educational Studies at the University of South Carolina. Dr. Hale's research focuses on the history of American education, specifically the history of student and teacher activism, education reform during the Civil Rights Movement, and the intersection of race and policy in the field of education. Hale's other research interests include the desegregation of K-12 education, the history of grassroots education reform efforts, and the origins of school choice and neoliberal education policy. Hale is interested in public, local, and oral history as a means to document the history of American education through community engagement. Hale's research has been recognized through awards from the National Academy of Education, the Spencer Foundation, and the American Educational Research Association. Can you just give us a quick overview of the Mississippi Freedom Schools and how you came to the topic? Yeah, so Mississippi Freedom Schools were a network of activist-oriented schools for young people, middle, mostly middle school and high schoolers, in order to train them in the principles and strategies of the civil rights movement. And in the book, I actually trace the idea of alternative education for activism or education for social change to reconstruction, and even before that, where it to use education in their schools as a site of political resistance is a recurring theme of the freedom struggle. And the freedom schools in Mississippi in 64 were just the most recent manifestation of this larger history. And I came across this topic as I was um, teaching in Wisconsin. I was looking for solutions to failing public schools and looking at how to engage youth, but also how to raise political awareness among students. And I came across an article by Howard Zinn, who was a you know socialist American historian, and I was inspired by something he wrote uh, in 1965, which is about the Freedom Schools. And 
having gone through a teacher education program and never hearing about the freedom schools, I was immediately inspired and, and thought that this was a solution. So this just sort of led me down the path of, you know, what I focused on in graduate school and then my uh, also the topic of my first book. One of the big keys of the book is that you really talk and you center youth and youth activism specifically, um, their agency, the risks that they took, and really what they what they learned from it, kind of taking the long arc view. Um, you know, these schools provided an avenue or a space, a training to really engage in nuanced civil rights work. Uh, the title of one of your chapters quotes activist Charlie Cobb that says, the student as a force for social change. Can you speak more to the centrality of youth agency and, and really the intersections with education as an organizing tool? Yeah, so I feel I mean, how I came to, you know, to look at youth agency is to see uh, the story or the narrative of youth as largely absent, I think, from our understanding of American history, that we typically ascribe agency to adult actors. And when we look at the civil rights movement, it's easy to sort of credit the NAACP or even college activists are sort of prompting and pushing this movement forward, but youth voices are missing. And in some ways, I think they're intentionally missing because if we don't see our students as activists, we're missing a key part, or as potential activists, right? We're missing a key part of the solutions that are right in front of us, right? If we only see our teaching as a form of, you know, fair we call it banking education, we're missing a critical part of youth, which is, you know, socialization toward political thinking and ways of thinking and seeing youth as potential solutions to the problem. I mean, youth are experiencing this on a day-in, day-out basis. They're naturally going to have solutions to the problems affecting them. So what I really wanted to get at with the Freedom Schools was the idea that youth are front and center in the history of the civil rights movement. And the civil rights movement couldn't have been what it was without young people on the front lines of the movement. And the Freedom Schools is really designed around that central concept that if we're not engaging our young people in the process of learning about the world around them, but more importantly, engaging them in this larger social and political movement, then we are at a loss for what to do. So I really sort of wanted to capture that narrative and remind readers that this is what our history is all about. It's young people at the front lines. Yeah, and, and obviously I encourage lots of people to read the book because it's a ton of stuff that I, as you kind of mentioned earlier, that we don't learn growing up. Um, but in the book, there's just some beautiful examples of student poetry, of student newspapers and editorials. Um, was there any, I mean, this is, um, might put you on the spot, but was there any kind of piece of work or activism that you came across from a, from a, a youth that really, really resonated or struck with you that you might share with us? Yeah, well, well, thank you for the um, kind words and, and for noticing that, you know, a lot of the research was built on trying to recapture student voice. So it's going through the archives to find newspapers and poetries that were works that they published, these newspapers. And I think one of the most striking or salient examples of student, I'll say scholarship, that led to activism was this idea of young people sort of calling out their elders and asking them or, you know, asking them why they're not doing more. So there's this poem that Joyce Brown published in Macomb, Mississippi in August, 
the day after the Freedom School was bombed. It was in a house and, and white terrorists had bombed this school and burned to the ground. And people were scared to come back to school the next day, except for the students who showed up for class, just like it was any other day. And what she, what, you know, Miss Brown uh, found was that you know, the teachers or the adults were afraid to commit money to rebuild the school. And she sort of wrote this poem talking about, you know, almost shaming her elders into not funding the school and to not move forward in, in, in the light of freedom. So it's this beautiful example of young people speaking up and, and calling truth to power. In this particular case, adult organizers in her community who were basically, um, too scared to move forward and, and she's standing up and saying no we have to move forward this is what must, what must be done and true to form adults responded and, and committed the money to, to build a new community center yeah and I, I'm I'm glad you mentioned that poem because it, it I have it written down I mean it is just it's haunting in it's in its beauty um it's striking it uh, it's called the house of liberty I believe but it's definitely something that I'm so glad it's yeah. included in the text. Yeah, well, good. I'm glad you noticed it. And yeah. It's just, as you know, right, one of many examples that our students are constantly producing, right, that serves as inspiration for action. Exactly, yeah. And, I mean, it, it's, you know, you mentioned another um, of the students whose brother was killed, right, and then he showed up yeah. to school the next day. I mean, so these youth were really putting themselves on the line, right, because they wanted to lead and be a part of this this movement. But also, too, I don't know what you think about this, but the idea, or even what you think of this as sure. um, an educator very involved, as, you know, as yourself, right, that youth, I think, especially in the 60s, but even today, I mean, aren't youth also denied what we consider to be youth? And I think, you know, the underlying argument is that youth itself is a sort of white middle class construct that doesn't fit to youth in our classrooms. Like our youth are denied childhood. They're walking around often as fearful of their life because they know how police, for instance, are going to engage with them um, outside of the classroom or, even, you know, <laughs> in the classroom. Right. So, I mean, part of this youth activism is just saying, we are young people and deserve a right to quote unquote childhood that our society denies. And I think that's part of the story to tell too. And I think, it, and you know, do you see that like, this is ongoing, right? We see this in our schools today. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a fantastic point. I mean, I know at the end I was going to ask you a little bit more about, you know, why you see the freedom schools as important today or how they live on. Um, but I think that that's a really, really valid point. And that's probably why there has been resonance amongst organizers today right how how can they reclaim that youth and their agency right um mm -hmm. and to a certain extent that sense of innocence right that we take yeah. away that we take away and, and unfortunately schools do a, a marvelous job of taking that away from youth right joy oh. and passion so yeah i really yeah. by design too yeah i think to not allow youth to experience that uh, of their own accord and to really work with that and see where it goes. Our schools are sort of designed to sort of quash that natural curiosity. But then also, especially in states like South Carolina, really prevent youth from joining the front lines. They're not allowed to be political in our classrooms, and that really negates the solution that's right in front of us. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that kind of brings us to another point, how you kind of talk about how really the pedagogy and the and the curricular innov- innovativeness of these schools is something, too, that often gets overlooked and kind of how they were doing critical pedagogy, right, and, and, yeah. and culturally responsive pedagogy and participatory pedagogy before, right, any other of the, the scholarship in the 70s or the 80s. And so I think that, too, is something, right? How has kind of the inherent learning that was going on in these schools and spaces been covered up and then also kind of been reclaimed, right, um, right. By, by communities not of color later on? Yeah. <laughs> Leave it to white organizers in order to just sort of make this up and say this is original to us, right? But, you know, it's interesting, and, I, you know, you, you say this this was culturally sustained pedagogy before we had a name for it, and educator activists were already practicing it, and they were practicing it because it made sense, mm-hmm. right, that you design a curriculum that incorporates the history, culture, and literature of your students into the curriculum, that, that they knew that just had to happen. And it's in so many ways common sense that they, they were just doing that. But also, they're practicing a very basic principle of they were listening to those closest and most affected by oppression. And that's what people were saying. We don't get this in our schools. We want this in our schools. So they're basing a curriculum on very simple truths that communities and community organizers were telling the freedom school teachers. So it was just a matter of and something policymakers don't do very well today, just opening up and listening to what people were saying and building a school around that. I mean, it sounds so simple, but yet in the 1960s and arguably still today, it's a revolutionary concept as well. Yeah, exactly. And I think it also speaks to why, um, you know, freedom schools and, and, and whole different kind of variations are popping up again today, right? How do you how do we remake and reclaim these spaces? Um, and so, you know, one of the things I really wanted to ask you is, is, you know, freedom schools are alive today and, and, you know, uh, in various manifestations across the United States, can you kind of give us some examples as to how, um, the freedom school model is still used today or, or how these parallel institutions still matter today? Yeah. So it's tricky in the era of school choice, right? Um, but before I tackle the issue of parallel institutions yeah. and charters and school choice, it's um, the Freedom School, the actual program is a tangible program that exists through the Children's Defense Fund, which is Mayor and Red Edelman's program that she runs out of D.C. And it's a six weeks intensive literacy program during the summer, and it engages young people in literacy and increase in literacy scores. And the, the program exists today, and there's 1,500 programs across the country every summer. It's a wonderful program, and I encourage all listeners to check it out, right? It, it's a supplemental program, but it engages the community, and it's a model that works. It's a model that works. Now, the Freedom School 64 raised, end up raising the question of parallel and alternative institutions to actually create your own school, you know, to break away from what they saw as this white power structure, right? to establish a school that follows the values and the merits of the community from which, of, to which you belong. Today we see that ideology buried deep within, I think, the charter school concept of community empowerment. So I think the freedom school doesn't live on in the charter school necessarily because that is lends itself toward privatization and neoliberal ideology of the state. 
but it captures or it leads to community empowerment, which is what the freedom schools ultimately led to, where were the were communities taking over, literally oftentimes taking over school boards and running schools and school districts based on their own interests and needs. Because school districts and traditional public schools weren't responding to that, so people were taking over in these aspects of community control. And the Freedom School shows us that this is possible and it's an effective model. So what does it take to get districts and school boards and administrators to truly listen to families and parents who depend upon traditional public schools? Is to really sort of listen to parents who use public schools and grant them more decision-making power. Right. I think that the freedom school model and the spirit is alive and well in these sort of community control experiments that we see leading to some charter schools. But we also see it leading to school improvement councils and other aspects that allow parents and community more say over how their children are educated because they, at the end of the day, know best. Right. Yeah. We as parents know best. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so just kind of in closing here, is there, is there anything that you would you know, want to share with all of us or emphasize about the Freedom Schools that um, we have not talked about yet? Yeah, no, and thank you for the opportunity to speak on this. You know, I, I think it's that our American history is alive and well with examples of what successful education reform looks like. We know what works. It just takes the political willpower to actually implement it. I also think the Freedom Schools, it's a celebratory tale, but I also try to write it critically as a cautionary tale because so many models today, like Teach for America and a lot of charter schools, are based on the model of white people coming in there and to, quote-unquote, save these particular communities. And someone could easily read the the Freedom Schools and say, oh, yeah, let's go – down to Mississippi or South Carolina and really save these poor, broken communities. And that's not it at all. The Freedom Schools are an empowering model for those most affected by the problem. And what you see is a need for white teachers to be critically educated in specifically critical race theory to see how white teachers are not necessarily a solution all the time, right? That we need that white teachers need to look at this issue critically and they need to sort of be educated in the principles of race and critical race theory to understand how education today is a racialized space and how white teachers can typically perpetuate this issue without looking at it critically. Yeah, and I, I mean, we could probably open up a whole nother discussion on this, but your book does go in, in with great detail about, you know, what did it mean that many of the Freedom School teachers were white, right? Um, how were they prepared to go into those spaces? Um, how were they also prepared not to hopefully enact that kind of saviorism as right. well? Um, and so I think it is actually, I didn't even think about those parallels, right, in terms of like drawing that to today's school, but um yeah, I don't know if you just want to talk about that a little bit more, and then we can kind of, because I think that's an important part. Yeah, I think that, you know, again, I think people look at civil rights history today as, as something that happened in the past and let's celebrate it and put a poster on the wall, right, um, and, and be done with it. But I think, you know, I really wanted to, to reconstruct this history as, you know, one in which that can instruct us on how to move forward. And specifically, when you look at a national teaching course that's 82% white, but our public system is minority-majority, 
there are major issues with white teachers going into these spaces. So, I mean, there is, again, a cautionary tale to tell how we approach this very issue. It's not that white teachers can't be effective. They can. But the, the way white educators, the way we're being educated now is not working. And we can see this in the school to prison pipeline. We can see this in the fact that we so-call something the quote-unquote achievement gap when we should be calling it educational debt. I mean, there's a lot of education that white teachers have to go through. And really the onus is upon them because we know the solutions, but it's upon white teachers and policymakers to really sort of learn and understand what these solutions look like. So hopefully, you know, um, the Freedom Schools helps get at that and really compels us to ask the difficult questions and to look at the difficult answers that are face that we're facing right now. Wonderful. Well, in closing, I, I definitely recommend everybody going out and, and reading the book. Um, like I said, it was an education for me. Um, and as you reference on many times, this is not there's no accident as to why this history is often hidden from us. So thanks so much for your time. Um, and yeah, I can't recommend the book enough. Well, thank you for the opportunity to talk. It was great. Thank you. Uh, absolutely. Thank you. That wraps up episode seven of the podcast. Thanks, Dr. Hale, for the informative conversation. Just a reminder, if you would like to chat about your work, ideas, or scholarship, please just reach out to me. We'd love to have you on the show. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day, wherever you are.